1: This is an Audiomint original.
2: Welcome to Nation of Animation, a Cartoon Book Club podcast for all ages. As always, I'm Ryan.
1: And I'm Brooke.
2: And today we are... Brooke, I have to be honest with you. What? This time, I just, I really couldn't handle TV. I couldn't handle watching TV. Oh, this I'm is a bit, I'm okay. tired of living <laughs> in a society, sitting in front of the boob tube, okay. watching the lamestream media
1: oh my god please
2: so instead i I i think we should take a trip to the cinema where real uh highbrow art happens
1: it may disappoint you to know that the first time that i saw this movie we watched was on a television wow well there's no fix in the past i guess all right, I'm sounding
2: like a real like right-wing jabroni right now, so I'm going to drop the bit. Um, you do these cool. bits,
1: and you don't tell me a thing about them. You don't tell me, I'm going to do this bit at the <laughs> beginning. And then I go in, and I'm like, what is happening?
2: Well, if I told you, then it wouldn't be a natural reaction. I'm doing this for the good of the art. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you can do a bit next time. Stay tuned for next episode when Brooke springs a bit on Ryan. That's a fun little cliffhanger we can do. Perfect. Great. See? And then it'll all be even. So anyway, what are we
1: talking about this week? We are talking about the only Studio Ghibli movie I have ever seen, and I had seen it before we watched it, but one that I really enjoy. It is Kiki's Delivery Service.
2: That's right. It's our first movie episode, folks. Welcome to Nation of Animation Cinema Edition.
1: Oh, I was going to say Nation of Animation at the movies.
2: At the movies is better. Okay. Nation of Animation at the movies. That is better. So, yes, we're talking about Kiki's Delivery Service, Brooks' first Studio Ghibli movie. We're going to fix that. That's another secret project uh, behind this podcast. We'll be watching more of these. Yes, Kiki's Delivery Service, or as it is in Japanese, uh, Majo no Attack was released in July 29th, 1989 in Japan. It was based on the 1985 novel by Kondo Eiko.
1: And it is apparently very different from the book. It's like a children's book.
2: It's a very like episodic little children's novel about a little witch going on various sort of misadventures. It's, It's like Winnie the Pooh almost was something that came to mind for me reading about it.
1: It's like little vignettes and Kiki overcomes the challenges in the book based on her good heart and like grows her circle of friends, which is sort of similar to the movie but she doesn't face any particular traumas or crises like when she loses her powers in the movie or the blimp accident or anything like that.
2: Yeah, she's just a chill young witch hanging out having pals.
1: The author was not happy about many of the <laughs> movie changes and was about to pull the project apparently when Mr. Miyazaki and one of the producers of the film like went to her home. To convince her, no, this has to go on.
2: No, no, this is going to be great. And in a few years, there's going to be this girl named Brooke, and she's going to love this. So, yeah, it that was in 89. The English dub uh, was released in 1997 through Disney, uh, released in theaters in 1998, rather. And we will be talking a bit about the differences between the English and Japanese versions. I watched the Japanese version with English subtitles.
1: I watched the English dub with no subtitles.
2: And... Let me make it clear here in Nation of Animation. This is a subs and dubs peace zone. This is an armistice between these warring factions. So I don't want to hear any disrespect to either form of enjoying Japanese animation.
1: Very diplomatic of you.
2: Listen, it's it's wild out there on the internet. We got to find peace where we can find it. Anyway, so that's a little bit about the background on Kiki's Delivery Service. And as you may have noticed when we talked about plot stuff a second ago, we're going to be full spoilers on this. We're going to be talking about the whole film in detail. So if you haven't seen Kiki's Delivery Service, give us a little pause. We'll be ready when you come back. Go watch it. It's great. It's an hour 40-ish. And then we'll be ready for you when you're done with that to talk about how great the movie you just watched was.
1: And it's also, what, over 30 years old now, so... That's
2: also true, so...
1: I don't feel too bad about spoiling some of it. This
2: is also not really a movie about plot. I mean, there is a plot, stuff happens, but this is much more of a sort of a vibe. Yeah,
1: Kiki's Delivery Service is about a 13-year-old witch named Kiki. And at the beginning of the movie, she lives with her parents. Her mother is also a witch whose specialty is making potions. She has a little black cat named Gigi who is one of my favorite parts of the movie. I love Gigi. But for witches, it's a tradition that when they turn 13, they leave their home for a year to continue their like witch training and become independent and all that jazz. And I remember when I watched it as a kid, I saw it on Disney Channel. And I was so scandalized that Kiki was leaving home at 13. It it, hurt me. I could not believe it.
2: I remember watching it as a kid and being like, yeah, get out there, Kiki. Go find your find your destiny. Live in the world. And now watching it again at my current age, I'm like, oh, yikes. This is truly a, a really idealized world where this is not just allowed, but even remotely safe.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say watching it as an adult, I thought, hell yeah, get out there. So you and I had opposite <laughs> journeys. To trade it off. So Kiki leaves her home and she travels by broomstick. She can fly on a broomstick to a port city, a city on the sea. And there she meets, well, first of all, when she gets there, people do not like her. (laughs) They have never seen a witch, most of them, even though it seems like witches are common elsewhere. Witches don't come to this town, which is not really explained, but, you know, whatever. So Kiki goes there and she starts thinking maybe we should leave, these people are mean, but then she meets a woman named Asono, who is a bakery owner. With her husband, and I will I will talk more about her husband later because I have <laughs> big thoughts on Asono's husband. And Asono lets Kiki stay in a room above the shop as long as Kiki helps out in the bakery and does delivery. So then Kiki starts a delivery service and she uses her broomstick to fly around and make bakery deliveries or different kinds of deliveries. And she meets a boy named Tombo who is super into her, mostly because she's a witch. But I think he comes to like be into her because she's a person later.
2: He just seems like a naturally curious little dude. Tombow's just living life. Anything new, he wants to get his little glasses-faced head inside and explore.
1: Yeah, and he loves flying. So he's amazed that Kiki can fly and he wants to be able to fly. So they eventually strike up a friendship. Kiki, like, makes friends around the city. And then the big sort of conflict in the piece is that Kiki starts to lose her confidence in herself and she doesn't really know why she wants to be a witch anymore so she loses her power so she can't talk to Gigi anymore who she could talk to and she can't fly anymore so she can't make deliveries but she meets a cool gal named Ursula who helps her and then Tombo gets caught in like a flying blimp accident so Kiki has to go and save him and when she realizes what she has to do she regains the power of flight and all is well. She is now a young, confident, thirteen-year-old witch.
2: Congratulations, Kiki! You've delivered on your service,
1: and that's pretty much the movie.
2: And that's it. That's Kiki Delivery Service, folks. What's great about that movie, and you know, you mentioned like the big conflict being her like conflict of confidence and her losing her magic powers, is that that happens pretty late in the film. It is like the last 30 minutes or so is when that really happens, thereabouts. For like most of the film, it is just this very slice of life. I think taking a vague sense of the episodic structure of the book, where she just like is going on a little misadventures. She makes deliveries. She meets a random person in the city or around and just learns a brief little tiny lesson about independence or something. And then it's on to the next journey. And the real arc is her relationship with tombo in her just like sense of self compared to the rest of this world this big city called corico that she has landed in
1: i read somewhere i was reading a couple articles on kiki's delivery service and some people's problem with the movie is that there is not like a big villain mm-hmm. besides maybe i don't know depression
2: or doubt yeah
1: <laughs> um though some people say that the blimp is the villain But the
2: blimp isn't, like, scheming against her the whole time.
1: The blimp is, like,
2: is the climax. But I don't know if the blimp is, like, the villain.
1: What do they call it in the movie? They call it a dirigible. A
2: dirigible, yes, yes, yes. The dirigible. (laughs) That dastardly dirigible. (laughs) Little Witch Kiki and the Dastardly Dirigible is not nearly a good title as Kiki's delivery service.
1: Because, you know, it's more about Kiki learning through her delivery service, which is great. And in the Japanese, the original Japanese version... It's not called Kiki's delivery service, right? It's called Witch's delivery service. Right.
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: I thought that was interesting. And what what did you tell me?
2: What did I tell you
1: about which country you can't call it Kiki? Oh, delivery in
2: service? Uh, Spain, I believe Kiki is sort of a slang term, or it's like an abbreviation of a slang term for uh, intercourse. So they could not call it that in that country.
1: So instead
0: it's <laughs> so called... So instead
2: Kiki is renamed Nikki in uh, Castilian Spanish for the Spanish version. The film was called Nikki la aprendiz de Bruja or Nikki the Apprentice Witch. Oh,
1: that's nice. <laughs> so um, this is a very famous movie for, as being directed by Mr. Miyazaki, who, you know, directed like My Neighbor Totoro and howl's moving castle
2: spirited away ponyo the wind rises he's the uh, muhammad ali of japanese uh, animated films
1: well he wasn't originally the director because he was busy working on my neighbor totoro so he thought he would not have time to do it but he really worked on the screenplay and had like big opinions about this is what should happen in the movie this is how it should go so eventually he just decided well i'll just direct it
2: and i'm glad he did which good for him there's a real, and this will come up probably whenever we talk about a Ghibli movie that Miyazaki had a hand in. There's a real sense of authorship in the movies that he works on. There's a sort of overarching style, and that style is very gently paced. That style is very like focused on the details. And the art style is almost like impressionistic. There's this really focus on like color and motion. And every character design has a real sense of like depth to it and weight. And weight the, in a way that like varies from character to character. Kiki moves like a thirteen-year-old. All the adults move like adults, and that is true of like their motion. Even when their characters are flying or whatever, that's true of how they how their heads are shaped and how their whole bodies sort of animate. There's a real attention on individual like identity in in Miyazaki's work the the films he oversees that I think is really indicative of his like style and artistic ambitions to tell more like methodical, intentional, sort of like internal stories. Even in big action movies like Princess Mononoke, which has a lot of fighting and monsters and action in it, or the sort of like more high concept animation stuff that happens in Howls
1: Moving Castle. I'll take your word <laughs> for it. As you know, I have not seen any learn. other ones. I feel like sometimes people are probably like, why is Brooke on here she knows nothing but i'm the everyman you
2: know a lot about american cartoons you know a lot about other cartoons that's okay this is it's nation of animation not nation of studio ghibli
1: that's true that's true thank you for
2: also we would we would run out pretty quickly if it was just ghibli movies it'd be a great time but it would be a sprint and we're running a marathon here folks well thank
1: you for for boosting me up very kind
2: absolutely and if anyone has anything to say about my co-host you can meet me in the streets (laughs) Perfect. That's an open challenge.
1: All right. Well, continuing on with Kiki, <laughs> I thank you for your commitment. So there are actually two English doves. The first one I have not watched, so I'm sorry to the first one. The second one, which is Disney's, I that's the one I've seen. And it has like a big name cast. Kirsten Dunst is Kiki, and she does a lovely job. Mm-hmm. She does. Very fun. Tress McNeil, who is, she's a big animation name. She is a sono. And fun fact, I've been watching a lot of Hey Arnold lately. She is grandma on Hey Arnold. Oh, nice. So that was cool. Matthew Lawrence of the famed Lawrence Brothers. I know the other uh, mid-twenties young ladies will know who I'm talking about.
2: <laughs> He's uh, one of the boys who met world, right?
1: He was on Boy Meets World in the later seasons as Wilfred L's character's roommate. So Eric, who is Corey's older brother's roommate in college. Jack, who is also Sean's older half-brother.
2: Yeah, love it. There was
1: a lot going on there at the end. But yeah, he voices Tombo. <laughs> and then Janine Garofalo is in it, uh, which people may know. She was, what, she was in New... Uh...
2: Janine Garofalo is like a stand-up comic. She was in the Ben Stiller show, the Larry Sanders show. I think she was on SNL for a time for, for a hot And she minute.
1: was also, though, in the new Wet Hot American Wet Summer. Wet Hot American Summer.
2: Yes, yes, yes. The TV show version.
1: Yeah. So she voices Ursula, who is the older young woman who helps Kiki get her groove back. And then Brad Garrett is actually in it in an uncredited role as Osono's husband.
2: Brad Garrett in it just for the love of the game. He didn't need his name on it. He just wanted to be in there.
1: And then Phil Hartman voices Gigi the cat and it was his last role before his death mm. and the Disney English dub is dedicated to Phil Hartman that's nice yeah very sad story behind that I don't know if you're in the mood for a sad story I guess you can look up Phil Hartman's death
2: yeah uh, quite a life lived but that is a sad story
1: yeah but also from SNL if you don't know who Phil Hartman is I read something It was like a little, I think it was sort of like a medium post, so fan written, but it was talking about how a lot of people who were lonely in big cities during the pandemic turned to Kiki's delivery service. And I thought that was really nice.
2: I get that. It is definitely a very comforting film. Even at the end when Lil Tombo's in danger, this is not a film that wants to lean on like too much dramatic tension or be too high strung or extreme. There's a certain amount of like I mean, it's stressful because he's a little kid, but the film doesn't try to push too hard and go too over the top with its like extremeness or danger. So even at its most stressful, it's still a very peaceful, uh, like tranquil experience, I'd say. Definitely a comforting presence.
1: And it's also about being lonely in a big city, so Mm -hmm. I get how people related to that. As far as the original Japanese voice actors go, Minami Takeyama voiced Kiki, and according to the Wikipedia page, also voiced Ursula.
2: That's range, folks. You
1: go. Which I thought was me? interesting. Yeah. And then Rei Sakuma voiced Gigi. And Gigi, Ryan, you might want to talk more about this because you've seen the Japanese version, but Gigi is a bit different in between versions.
2: Right. So Gigi in the Japanese version is, I mean, essentially the same character, still Kiki's little cat friend, her like witches is familiar I suppose who accompanies her on her big journey. But Gigi is voiced by a female voice actor in the Japanese, but Phil Hartman in the American. Um, because of like a cultural difference in how we view animated animals and like how like viewers are used to like assigning gender to animated animals or sidekicks. And since Gigi the cat is a boy cat, they gave him a more deep masculine voice for the English release, whereas in Japanese media, I guess it's not that uncommon for a cat, regardless of Ginger, to have a high squeaky voice because they're little cats. So uh, Rei Sakuma is the voice actor for Gigi in the Japanese version. There's also a difference in like how Gigi is, personality-wise, Hartman's Gigi is much more, like, sarcastic and sort of reluctant to help and more, like, eager to to get Kiki to calm down and not go on crazy adventures. I think that speaks to, like, an American sentiment of, like, we need a Zazu with our Simba. (laughs) We need a sidekick who is going to be, like, a voice of reason. And I think Gigi in the original is still a voice of reason, but in a more way that is just, like, how would a 13-year-old's conscience actually work? A voice of like, well, this is what my parents told me and this is what's safe. Whereas in the English dub, Hartman's Gigi is very like, oh, I don't think this is a good idea. I want to go home. Stuff like that.
1: Also, at the end of the original Japanese version, Kiki does not regain her ability to talk to Gigi. Mm -hmm. You know, in the English dub, she does.
2: Right. That definitely feels like something that was like audience tested. And they were like, we want Gigi to talk again.
1: Yeah. And I can see that. I mean, I feel like as an American audience member, it seems easier for me to grasp oh she lost her witch power and her gg power and then if she gets her flying power back she gets her talking to Gigi power back right whereas i believe mr miyazaki said that in the original kiki does not talk to Gigi again because she's matured beyond Gigi.
2: right she's outgrown the need to talk to her cat
1: which is kind of sad
2: it's kind of sad but also another thing the the movie also doesn't really dwell on this like the moment where Uh, Gigi just starts meowing instead of speaking Kiki goes like oh I can't understand him anymore I wonder what that's about I know and then kind of goes on with her life feeling sad it doesn't I think an American release would really try to milk that drama for all it's worth but this is just sort of a the facts of life of growing up as a young witch
1: yeah I mean but for me personally if I was able to talk to my cat and then lost that power Mm -hmm. I would lose my freaking mind (laughs) yeah it'd be devastating so, yeah, you know, I think that's a cultural difference, obviously, between Japanese audiences mm-hmm. and American audiences, which is just interesting more than anything.
2: I want to talk a little bit about um, you mentioned how some view the dirigible as the antagonist of the film. And I, well, I've said that, I really don't think that's true. I think it is indicative of this sort of central theme that's constantly happening either in the background or the foreground of the movie, whereas this sort of pull between the modern and the traditional or the like big city and the familiar the magic versus modernity or tradition versus modernity although since she's from a family of witches magic and tradition are kind of similar but you know she leaves kiki leaves her family's little neighborhood to go to the big city on the way there she encounters another witch while kiki is flying away she is like playing music on a radio the other witch very like haughty and pompous tells her to turn that radio off. She doesn't like music. And that's an example of like things in magic and things in the modern world don't really get along that well. And Kiki as a character is trying to kind of reconcile that. Tombo being fascinated by flying, trying to build his own little like flying bike, which kind of doesn't work, and then being imperiled by a like, flying machine made by non-magical hands feels like another example of this tension between... like what magic gives you and what the world tries to supply and while i think there is a way to interpret this movie through this lens then as saying that like magic is better uh reject modernity and embrace tradition and just be with your family forever i don't think that's true because i think there is you know kiki clearly is getting something from living here in the modern world even if it does come at a cost of like some anxiety and and sense of isolation she finds a community she finds a sense of belonging and a way to reconcile these two things by using like a street sweeper's broom to rescue tampo at the end there's also a line when kiki's talking about her magic where they say that like magic comes from spirit from like a person's like inner spirit so i think then the notion of how you use that spirit whether it is to revere old ways or to like invest in your own life as an individual supports this theory as well. She can still have magic at the end because she's just learned to like have that part of her spirit and enjoy life in the city too.
1: I think we see it, you know, even when Kiki initially gets to the city, she has that scuffle with Mm -hmm. a bus because she's flying through a tunnel that a Mm -hmm. bus is coming through and then is about to get written up by a traffic cop. Mm -hmm. So even there we see like the modernity of cars and her and Gigi were so amazed to see so many cars Mm -hmm. even.
2: There's also the bit at the beginning where... You know, they're flying through a rainstorm to take shelter. They, like, land and hide in a train that is shipping hay and cows. They don't realize the cows at first. Didn't that
1: seem like the most comfortable thing in the whole world? It makes it look like the most comfortable thing in the world. And I know hay scratches the hell out of you. It would not feel good. But they made it look like the best place to be ever.
2: Yeah. Hay is perhaps one of the worst substances to sleep in in all of God's green earth. But this movie really romanticizes sleeping in hay. Kiki pulls up, like, a blanket of hay around herself and cuddles in it, and it looks like the best experience (laughs) anyone's ever had. But this notion of, like, they slip into this train, and the train, I guess the train doesn't know how to sort them, or they inadvertently sort themselves in among, like, food for animals. It's just, like, very rustic and sort of pre-industrial revolution again, and this big train just, like, ships them like they're not there. So it takes some doing for her to reconcile her sense of self with like what the world actually is now i think that's a relatable experience for anyone who was young before or moved to a new place
1: yeah and i think you know piggybacking off of this just a little bit there's also the sense of like tradition versus modernity Mm -hmm. or whatever within it i'm thinking specifically when kiki meets tombo for the first time and he tries to talk to her and kiki chastises him And says that it's not polite to talk to a young lady without an introduction Mm -hmm. being made first. And Tombo says something like, you sound like my grandmother. (laughs) I think we see tradition
2: even in how Kiki is like dressed. She is the platonic ideal of witch where it's like black dress, broom, black cat. The only thing she really needs is like the hat. But instead she has this great red bow, um, which just really makes the character design pop. But her her style of appearance is very, like, this is the witchiest witch who ever witched. And, like, how she has been sent out into the world is with these, the way that her parents raised her. I'm not saying her parents did a bad job. They seem like great people. But it is this, like, the frame of reference she's been given is very rooted in tradition. And very rooted in, like, a specific way of doing things.
1: And, you know, we're talking a lot about themes right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big theme of it that I think sort of plays into this is the pros and cons of growing up. Mm-hmm. Or even growing away from, like, traditionalism. Yeah. And I think this is seen more, obviously, in the original Japanese version through Gigi. Mm-hmm. Like, losing her ability to talk to Gigi permanently is just a trade-off of becoming more mature and not necessarily needing Gigi to guide her anymore.
2: And thinking about it as the pros and cons, I think, is really on the money but there's also the fact that like it's not an optional thing. <laughs> like Kiki can't really choose whether or not she grows up. It's just a matter of how she meets her coming maturity and how she sort of prepares herself for for the world as a young adult witch, as opposed to like a child witch.
1: And another scene that illustrates this, I mean, it's been mentioned in like critiques of, I say critiques, not like critiques in a bad way, like more examinations of Kiki's delivery service. There's one scene and it does not further the plot. It is not an instrumental scene. It's where Kiki goes downstairs to use the facilities. And she's in like her night clothes. And she's about to leave. And then Osono's husband comes outside mm-hmm. and like does some stretches or whatever. And Kiki like hides herself in the bathroom and won't come out. And I, that just felt very indicative of my mm-hmm. experience as a young woman. Just the embarrassment of something that's not embarrassing—of going down to the bathroom in your underclothes and then seeing a full-grown man. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Even now, <laughs> I feel the same you way. S- but- I can hear
2: you having like flashbacks to events in your own youth. I can—I can hear images flashing up before your own eyes.
1: I mean, it's just a very—it's a very visceral mm-hmm. sort of reaction. And obviously very accurate. But we see her grow more comfortable with Sono's husband. Like he makes the beautiful wreath made out of bread that hangs in the front of the shop that has Kiki flying on her broom and it says Kiki on it. The
2: bread in this movie.
1: We'll get to the bread.
2: I know, I know, I know.
1: And she like gives him a hug because he made it. Mm -hmm. And that's another instance to me of, well, she's grown to know this person a little more and also has grown a little more mature about it. Yeah, I mean I
2: think the notion that this isn't that this scene isn't related to the plot is kind of faulty depending on what you think the plot is. I mean if if the plot is just like the episodes of her deliveries and eventually the dirigible incident, then sure, fine. But it's absolutely part of the story. It's absolutely part of her getting more comfortable in her skin and getting more comfortable in the world around her. That that is I that is an integral scene to the film.
1: And another theme, I'm going to I'll just keep throwing themes on.
2: Please do.
1: Well, and this one sort of goes along with the other ones, because that's how themes are. But that I was very struck with was the importance of, like, female role models in young women's lives. Because when Kiki... Henry!
2: Leave this in, please.
1: Why are you meowing like this? (gasps) Henry! I love you! Henry is a little cat, and he lives with me. He lives where I live. He's not my cat, but I do love him.
2: Henry is your Gigi.
1: Henry's here to give me wisdom, yes.
2: All right, Gigi talk with Henry. Okay,
1: please stop while I explain the importance of female role models in young women's lives. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll see that especially after Kiki gets to the new city, most of the people in her life that influence her are women because you've got Asono who takes her in. We don't really speak to Asono's husband. And then Ursula, who helps mm-hmm. her get her powers back. And then people like Madame and Barsa. Madame is an older woman who Kiki does a delivery for, and Barsa is her housekeeper. And then even, like, Kiki's mom.
2: Has much more screen time than Kiki's dad, who's just kind of a goofus. I mean, I think each of these characters is a special, like, unique aspect of feminine role models. Uh, Ursula is, like, younger, and is more of, like, a... Uh, vision of extreme independence because Ursula like lives in the woods as an artist super independent super on her own we have Asano who has like this family situation in her own small business like Kiki's delivery service Madame as Bursa as like feminine companionship yeah I just think that's super smart and nifty of the people working on this movie to give us so many different flavors of feminine role models and people to look up to for
1: kiki so those are some of the themes that i think you know are hit hard during the film or things that resonate with me or resonate with you but there are also a lot of just little things about it that i enjoyed (laughs) and i know you enjoyed the first one is just Asono's absolute himbo of a husband
2: god he is the archetype he's the blueprint
1: (laughs) this man has what one line in the whole thing
2: Mm -hmm. That's why Brad Garrett was uncredited.
1: And he just goes back there. He is ripped. He makes the bread and shuts up. (laughs) I love him.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Fukuo knows his role. His role is to look strong and support his wife and then just hang out.
1: And at the end, so Asono's pregnant throughout the whole film, which was also cool. We usually don't see pregnant women in film unless their plot point is Mm -hmm. to have a baby to further the plot. Right. Which is not what happened here. So that was really cool. But at the end of the movie, they're doing like a little montage and it's Kiki's life now that she's gotten her powers back. And there's this beautiful shot of Asono and her husband and he's holding the baby. And I love that man.
2: This man is built like a dang Dorito chip. He's all, (laughs) his shoulders are massive. His waist is small. He is a real, a real catch. Good job, Asono.
1: He is the blueprint. You're right.
2: Uh, Speaking of, you know, the cool dudes, uh, dude corner in Kiki's library service, let's talk about Tombo. Let's talk about Tombo and all his little fits. Griffin McElroy looking ass Tombo.
1: He does look like Griffin McElroy. If you don't know Griffin McElroy, he is also a podcaster and like video maker. He does My Brother, My Brother and Me. And the Adventure Zone and things like that.
2: If you look him up, you might see his Forbes 30 Under 30 photo, where he's wearing two wristwatches on the same hand, and he looks like Tombo. He's like a live-action Tombo. A little old for the role now, but but what could have been, right? What could have been.
1: And Tombo is always dressed to the nines. Every outfit is so fresh. Every single thing he wore, I was like, oh, I would wear that. Oh, I would wear that. Oh, that looks so good.
2: He got the like, where's Waldo short sleeve shirt, like red and white stripes. He got a little yellow jacket tied around his shoulders. Got some cute little high water <laughs> jeans that he's, uh, are either rolled up or just like that. And then a really nice sensible pair of brown shoes.
1: He wears other fits too, though, that are striking. But that's his main one. Yeah. No, I love him. And I love every outfit he wears. Also, I have to talk a little bit about Madame and Barsa, who are, in my mind, mm-hmm. lesbian couple. Welcome to Headcanon Corner. These two old ladies living together? No, they're lesbians. Barsa is one of my favorite characters, because when Kiki shows up, she's like, just like my grandmother talked about. She has a broom. She can fly. And I, just the little, like, insight into witch lore there was very interesting to me. Like, that could have been a movie in and of itself. Like, what drove Mm -hmm. the witches out of this town to the point that no one, even these old people, have ever seen one?
2: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it feels very like Paul Bunyan, John Henry, like machinery just replaced the, the magic of the world and now Kiki's bringing it back. But it is a nice little tiny moment that suggests a bigger, deeper history.
1: Yeah, I love Barca and Madame, who is voiced by Debbie Reynolds. Love you, Debbie Reynolds
2: and Edie McClurg, who voiced Barca in the English version. Uh, they are voiced by uh, Madama's Haruko Kato, and Barsa is by Hiroko Seki. The the Debbie Reynolds and Edie McClurg of Japanese voice acting, of course.
1: So those are some little things. Also one little like tiny thing you'll notice at the end of the movie. So Kiki steals a push broom to get Tombo when he's hanging from the dirigible. And that's, that's her the broom now. that she keeps flying around.
2: I mean, this this film is full of, like, little details like that and just stuff that shows the care and attention to detail that went through in, like, everybody making this film. I think, yeah, her having that broom at the end is great. I think the way... I mean, I've gushed about the animation already, but I just really like... The the opening shot of her, like, lying down in the grass and watching the wind, like, blow the grass and her hair at, like, different rates, like, really specific animation to show how the wind is blowing is so graceful and so neat. Uh, That train scene where they land on the train, the way her broom skids through the rainwater on top of the train is sick, uh, to use the parlance of our times. It's a great looking film, which is not surprising at all considering the, the talent behind it, but it still just needs to be said. I just want to shout out a funny thing. This is apropos of nothing, but just a note that... In terms of backlash or like negative responses to this film, they're pretty scant, but one came from the conservative Christian group Concerned Women for America, who wanted to boycott the screenings, and said (laughs) uh, in a press release from February 5th, 1998, Disney reverts to witchcraft in Japanese animation, saying that the Disney company is not family-friendly but continues to have a darker agenda, which, okay, Disney does have a darker agenda, but it's capitalism. It's not witchcraft. Disney would be so much cooler if they were run by witches.
1: So very funny.
2: So very stupid response from a very stupid uh, cause.
1: Yeah. Uh, Looking towards the future, Kiki is still in people's minds. There is a musical version that is coming. This is a Japanese musical. It started production in March of 2021. So they have high hopes for post-pandemic theater. You know what? I do too.
2: Cannot wait. If anything can get us back, it's Kiki the musical.
1: (laughs) And there's also going to be a Studio Ghibli theme park. It's in the works for 2022. The big thing is that it's going to have like a full-size Howl's Moving Castle that people are really excited about. But it's also going to feature Kiki's home that you can visit. I'm assuming they mean like her apartment above Osono's Bakery.
2: Right. Do we get the bakery? Because we got to get the bakery.
1: That is so good of you to say, Ryan, because (laughs) that moves us on to our next segment. And Ryan is calling this... Our next segment. Miyazaki Munchies.
2: Miyazaki munchies listen I'm a single issue voter and that issue is how good food looks in Miyazaki's Ghibli movies if you've seen a lot of studio Ghibli movies you've definitely seen that the amount of lavish detail they give the rest of their worlds is absolutely still present in the food there's some great food scenes in House Moving Castle there's a famous section of A Spirited Away that centers on lavish decadent food Um, Kiki's delivery service as far as food goes does not have a ton but what it does have is a ton of great looking bread. The bread in Asano's shop that she and her stacked hubby are always baking is rendered so well. It looks so filling. It looks so well cooked like the the golden brown it always looks like. Seeing characters lift it it looks so soft. I am starving just talking about how good this bread looks.
1: And there's some other food too like Madame Makes this beautiful fish pie. And I'm not a big fish person. Oh, yeah, the herring
2: and pumpkin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I would eat the hell out of that. It looks so Mm -hmm. good. And then she makes Kiki a cake to thank her for her help. And it's like a chocolate cake and it has Kiki flying on it. and says Kiki on it. It's so beautiful. Gosh. So there is a lot of food to enjoy in here. While we're here, Ryan, Mm -hmm. would you like to write for us right now? And this is a bit. I'm springing on you.
2: Ah, uh, no. Hoisted on my petard?
1: It's more likely than you think. No! <laughs> yeah, would you like to write us oh, a short poem, an ode to the bread oh in God. Kiki's delivery service?
2: Okay, okay, okay. Asano bakes the finest bread, like a soft grain pillow for my head. <laughs> I'd eat all day, I'd eat all night. I would not let Kiki take... Me on a flight that the, ry- the rhythm was bad on that one. I'm sorry. Too busy eating bread for me. Leave the bread to me and Gigi. Bad. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you've gotten your revenge.
1: That was good.
2: It's first draft.
1: I wanted to cap off Miyazaki munchies.
2: Miyazaki munchies. Great. We'll end each one with a with a little stumbling, fumbling attempt
1: at a poem about how good the food looked. I'll do one next time. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so do you have any other like final thoughts on Kiki's delivery service? I think that
2: one thing about Kiki's delivery service, and this is also sort of just broadly about uh Studio Joby, and really the like work and philosophy of uh Mr. Miyazaki is this notion of art that is, you know, capturing something from real life and trying to capture a sense and a feeling of the world around us. He, you know, had one quote about how Kiki being a witch differs from other like magical girl characters popular in japanese animation like sailor moons and such miyazaki said that the witchcraft has always merely been the means to fulfill the dreams of young girls they have always become idols with no difficulties which he meant that you know those shows make witches or like people with magic powers look like superheroes who can just like blast through whatever their problem is So Kiki's powers instead are really limited. Even when she has them, they're mostly like, mostly just flight, I think. And she still has to be like a person and develop social skills and navigate the world. Mr. Miyazaki, uh, sort of an old guard, and some quotes can sort of make him come across as kind of cantankerous in a way that is uh, at times really funny. He does not care for a lot of like modern anime and he especially does not care for anime fans (laughs) who like are obsessed with it the term like weeb or otaku is often used to like talk about people who are obsessive fans of anime and try to make it their personality he once said in an interview in 2014 if you don't spend time watching real people you can't do this talking about making anime because you've never seen it some people spend their lives interested only in themselves Almost all Japanese animation is produced with hardly any basis taken from observing real people. It's produced by humans who can't stand looking at other humans. And that's why this industry is full of otaku! Um, and with an exclamation point at the end. Oh my gosh. Um And I just think that really shows the difference in philosophy behind... His works and then more like action oriented stuff where he is trying to make stuff based on real people and he views other anime as like being based off like sensational action and or just like appealing to fans who already like similar things i mean that's a really nuanced take on it from this interview some of these people like to say that in japanese he said anime was a mistake that's a false quote but it is a it is a sentiment he seems to espouse in some way shape or form i just thought that was uh, interesting and like indicative of his like philosophy as a creator
1: yeah and uh frequent listeners of nation of animation will notice we didn't really have a sketchy side for kiki's delivery service because
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's not a lot of because it, it kicks ass out. yeah there's not a lot of sketch about it. Uh, one thing, you know, we did want to mention is that Mr. Miyazaki as a person has had sort of his own personal battles, specifically mm-hmm. like fatherhood. And this is not gossip or something that's unconfirmed. Both he this and his son well have talked about this. Yeah. But he was often not around for his son. He was sort of an absent dad. And then his son did get into directing as well. And... Mm -hmm. Ryan, you might have a more direct quote about this, but I remember reading an article, and it was like Mr. Miyazaki watched his son's first film, a cut of it, and told him that it was awful, that he had done a Mm -hmm. terrible job directing it. And even if you think that, I don't know that it's always the time or space to say it to your son, who you've been an absent father to.
2: (laughs) Right, I mean, yeah, the the relationship between Mr. Miyazaki and his son, uh, Goro, uh, he has another son, but him and Goro are the ones who are... Uh, have a lot of ink been spilled about their relationship. It's a, a troubled story. Goro Miyazaki directed the film Tales from Earthsea, which was a Ghibli uh, joint uh, an adaptation of the stories by Ursula K. Le Guin. Anyway, yeah, there are varying reports of like what he said. So apparently he said a number of things, which kind of makes it worse. Supposedly he, uh, like during a sick, like when after taking a smoke break after the film, said that no one should direct a film based entirely on their emotions which is sort of a rough uh, phrase. He apparently, after talking with his son and giving him some not super kind advice, said that, you know, the film was made honestly, so it was good, which is kind of damning with faint praise. He didn't want his son to direct. He thought that his son had no experience and had no business trying to direct at such a young age, which has just got to be tough to hear from your parent, Mr. Miyazaki, later, you know, he made the film Ponyo, which is about parenting and family and apparently is an apology To his son for being such an absentee and sort of emotionally distant father. Which I think is so kind of heartbreaking because like this is Mr. Miyazaki is someone who clearly cares so much about like life and the world and making art that reflects and talks about the real world. And to think that so much of his life is spent throwing himself into his work and like distancing himself from his family that that must be a tough a tough time going to sleep at night I guess trying to reconcile those two things.
1: Yeah, and if you if you're someone who is still on Tumblr, like the dinosaurs that we are, if you look up Mr. Miyazaki, you can find a lot of really cool gift sets or like picture sets of some of his quotes. And then he has you know lots of knowledge to impart. But also, if you read him, lots of sadness. Mm-hmm. I think it's obvious that there are things about his life that he knows were a trade off because of his mm-hmm. genius in the world of animation.
2: I also think that in, I mean, I think in America, like working in animation is a, is a workaholic job that asks a lot of you. But in, a, in Japan, the manga and anime industries are known for being just hell on creators, are known for ridiculous like dedication and schedules. And I think that it is it is an environment that really encourages isolating yourself from the people in your life, which sucks.
1: It does suck. You're right.
2: The end.
1: Yeah. So that's sort of our, our Kiki retrospective. I love Kiki's mm-hmm. Delivery Service. I would watch it again right now. And I just yeah. watched it last this night. This is awesome.
2: This is fantastic. This is a great, a great film.
1: So I'm excited to watch the next one we watch. Ryan, I guess you'll pick that. I'm I'm really, I will say when I was a kid, I remember being so mad watching Kiki's Delivery Service that there wasn't more romance. Mm -hmm. and Mr. Miyazaki has spoken on this too I will not get the quote exactly right but he has said things along the lines of you know it's a much purer love to see the power of friendship that leads us to save someone hanging from a dirigible you know than necessarily Mm -hmm. romantic love in animation though you have told me that Howl's Moving Castle is hot
2: Howl's Moving Castle is romantic Howl's Moving Castle will, will get you in the heart I think so I think that will be our next exploration into Studio Ghibli
0: who knows I'm when it'll be,
2: but I, me too. So look forward to that listeners.
1: So Ryan, outside of animation, we do things, you and I, <laughs>
2: we live lives.
1: What were you doing this week? What interests you this week out in the real world? What is your real world wreck? You
2: know what? Uh, at the time of recording, I am on a residency in New Mexico, so I'm going to put over, uh, I'm going to real world recommend great the great food that I've been eating. Uh, <laughs> Mexican food is really good. I've been really enjoying lots of enchiladas and burritos. I uh, like uh, Tex-Mex food from, uh, you know, this area, this part of the country in Mountain Time is very, very good and better than anything I'd had in other regions of the country. So I'm putting that over. G- get yourself some some tasty Tex-Mex food this week, folks.
1: Yeah, and go to your authentic Mexican restaurants mm-hmm. and support
2: Avoid them. the chains. They don't need you. This is coming from a former uh, uh, Chipotle employee.
1: I was. You were not.
2: Yeah, I, but you agree. so.
1: <laughs> I do. I do agree.
2: This is coming from someone who ate lots of free food because his girlfriend was a Chipotle employee. (laughs) What about you, Brooke? What are you enjoying out in the world that is non-animated?
1: Okay. I I mean, I'm reverting here. It might be a a symptom of quarantine. I don't know. But I have been listening to, and I had not heard these, Tatiana Mislani, who is an actor who has been on things like Orphan Black or Parks and Rec, and she's going to be the new She-Hulk, I think. She has narrated The Hunger Games, the three book trilogy. She has narrated it and done audiobooks for them. And I've been listening to those and they are wonderful. She does just a beautiful job of it. Mm-hmm. And it's really got me back into The Hunger Games. And also, this is, I'm tying into, I'm cheating. If you are a frequent Audio Mint listener, which is the network that our podcast is a part of, there's another podcast on it called Yahweh We Read It, hosted by Laura Petro and Maggie Gates. And it's about reading YA books. And right now they're doing the Click series. But when they do for a season, the Hunger Games, they better ask me to be a guest. We have never met each other in our lives. But I love them and I love their show. And I'm telling them right now, I'm calling them out. If they listen to this podcast you need to have me as a guest when you need to do the Hunger Games because I have a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts.
2: It's a great show. This is an open challenge to Yahweh Reddit. And in exchange, if you'd like to come on our show, we could do that too.
1: Yeah, we're, we're giving. So sort of two real world wrecks, but there they are. If you haven't listened to Yahweh Reddit, go listen to them. And also listen to Tatiana Maslany read you the Hunger Games.
2: Well, thank you for joining us yet again. We'll see you next time for another State of the Nation of Animation. But until then, the State of Animation
1: is, is strong. strong.
2: Nation of Animation is hosted by Ryan Stevens and Brooke Aaron Smith and produced by Danny Mendoza. Our show art is by Hervashi Lele, and our theme music is by Jacob Menke. Be sure to follow us at Cartoon Book Club on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening!